Good morning, and if you're just tuning us, joining us, tuning in online, thank you for joining us again. And uh, Memorial Day, as noted earlier, is where we remember those who gave their lives in service in the U.S. military. And Memorial comes from a Latin word, which means to remember. We are a remembering people. And as we gather today, I want us to either hear, perhaps for some of you, for the first time, or to remember how, how God describes His people. Not just a person, singular, but a people, plural, His corporate people that He died for. As we heard uh, Ezekiel read uh, as His temple, you are that temple. And so we have called this sermon series since uh, May, since the beginning of May, uh, we have called this sermon series The Delectable Mountains. And that comes from John Bunyan's uh, famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, where he metaphorically describes the people of God as a refreshing, beautiful mountain range where, where his people can go and find uh, rest, encouragement, nourishment for their souls. And he describes them as de a delectable mountain. What's even more striking is if you recall, John Bunyan was in prison when he wrote this. He was in prison. You can just imagine, he was separated from the people of God, and his memories of the people of God while he's in prison are a delectable mountain, a place he longs to be and so what we have tried to do so far is look at the Word of God and see how, what biblical pictures, so that was John Bunyan's picture, what, what biblical pictures does God use to describe His people? So far, we've covered the church as the assembly of God with its roots in the Old Testament. We've seen the church as the bride of Christ. Last week, we saw the church as what? the flock of God. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And today, we're going to look at another title for the church, where we are collectively called the temple of the living God. So as we get ready to, to gather again on a larger scale in the coming weeks, I hope that this sermon series has, and, and by the grace of God, continues to stir in you an, an eagerness to be with the people of God, to see with new beauty, both in light of the Scriptures and in light of all that's happened that's kept us from one another, to see with new beauty afresh, and have a holy longing to gather with God's people to worship our great God together. And so with that in mind and to that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, give us, renew within us this picture of your bride, of your flock, of your temple this morning. Remind us, Father, who we are in Christ, forgiven adopted sons and daughters, betrothed to Christ, watched over by our shepherd, and now built up as a temple, as living stones to worship you. And so, Lord, would you instill this in us, and may it, may it cause us to live holy lives, to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I do want to lift up our partner churches as many wrestle with the logistics, as many wrestle with uh, when to reunite and how to reunite on their campus that you have given them, Father. Would you bind your church together in unity all across the islands? May we clothe ourselves with humility. May we walk in the Spirit, and may we be ever more vigilant now of spiritual battles raging in our hearts, and may we also be ever more eager to see you form Christ-likeness in your people. 
And so, Father, would you do this great work here at KBC, at Waihu Community Church, on Lahaina Baptist on the west side, and Pukalani Baptist on the mountain, and Valley Isle Fellowship in Wailuku, and all across Kihei Baptist, Maui Philippine Baptist, and on and on, the outer islands, Molokai and Lanai. I just pray, Father, that you would build a people for your name all across these lands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I have two points. Number one, the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. Number two, the framework of the church. The foundation of the church and the framework of the church. Now, uh, before I can get into uh, this portion in 1 Corinthians 3, really we need to, to ask a few questions. Now, when you think of the temple of the living God, what, what scripture passages come to mind for you? Think about that. When you think of the temple, what scripture passages come to mind for you? You're like, well, obviously the one we just read, and I know Jesus went to the temple a few times and did something with tables and flipped them over and yelled at people and scored, got a whip, and uh, he did stuff like that. But what else? What else? Well, what I want us to see, as we have seen with all of the other Old Testament, uh, all the other titles, is they all find themselves rooted not in the New Testament. They all find their beginnings, they're rooted in the Old Testament. And this is no different when we think of the church as the temple of God. This imagery comes right out of, as does the flock, as does the bride, uh, right out of the Old Testament. So if we're going to consider the church as temple, we need a theology of the temple, don't we? We need to understand what the temple was and where it began. Now let me ask you this, where does the story of the temple begin? Anybody know? Think about it, you don't have to answer out loud. Where does the story of the temple begin? Is it First Kings? Samuel perhaps? Goes before, doesn't it? It begins in the book of Genesis with the Garden of Eden, as where it does everything else. That's a good bet. If anybody asks you, where does this begin? Probably in the book of the beginnings, Genesis, with the Garden of Eden. But we'll fast forward a little bit from there, because it really starts to take more shape in the form of a temple. It starts to take more shape in another Old Testament book, the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is a very important book for the people of God. It is worth being familiar with. Uh, there is much more in it than just the ten plagues of Egypt and the ten commandments, although those are both definitely highlights of the story. But the story of the temple really takes form in Exodus with the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. If you remember, God redeems his people out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai in a type of wedding ceremony, a type of covenant presentation before their God, where they introduce, where they are introduced to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one who rescued them. He gives them the Ten Commandments, the, the laws of the covenant summarized in those Ten Commandments. And then what follows in Exodus 24 is it says the leaders of Israel saw God. And it's a dazzling picture in Exodus 24 that we still, the best scholars, don't quite understand what they saw. He describes it, but it's one of those things that's indescribable. When you see God, you stretch for words in, in, in whatever language you are in to describe what you are seeing. And so we have a spirit-wrought description, but still what it is baffles and eludes scholars as to what precisely they saw, but they see God in a covenant ratification ceremony. And then immediately following this formal ratification, we get directions, directions for the tabernacle and how it is to be built how it is to be erected and constructed, and that spans multiple chapters in Exodus, from cha uh, chapter 25 almost to the end of the book. And what we find throughout the narrative of the Pentateuch as it unfolds and as this is developed, what we find 
the tabernacle is a place where at least three things happen. At least three things happen in the tabernacle. One, it's where God dwells with his people in their very midst. Two, it's where divine revelation is made. In Exodus 25, 22, God speaks to Moses from the tabernacle and is giving divine revelation to him. It's where divine revelation was often made. Number three, it's where sacrifices and atonement are made where offerings are presented and atonement is made. And what we find in the book of Exodus is the final climax, the final pinnacle of the book of Exodus. Remember, Exodus has three climaxes for those who were a part of this sermon series in that time. Exodus is, it doesn't just have one climax. It's an amazing story. It has three. The first one was the parting of the Red Sea and the Passover, where God delivered his people from Egypt. The second was at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. And the third, do you remember what the third was? It's the third and final act, the grand finale. The last chapter of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle's built. It's placed in the midst of the camp. And what happens? The glory of God descends. And God, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, for the first time, time since the fall of man for the first time since all things went wrong more than 2,000 years pass of world history between Genesis 3 and the end of Exodus think about that for the first time God dwells in the midst of his people that's huge that's why Exodus is huge that's why Exodus forms the Psalms, many of them, the prophets. They cast their final redemption in Exodus language because it's massively important. What an ending to a book. And then the history of Israel progresses. God's tabernacle gets an upgrade, doesn't it? It turns from a mobile tent to a temple, a stable temple under the reign of David and Solomon. 1 Kings 8, 1-11 through describes just like God's presence and glory descended on the tabernacle in Exodus 40, God's presence in 1 Kings 8 upon the dedication of the temple, it now descends in glory. It says the people beheld the glory of God. But, as we saw in Exodus with the golden calf incident, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes back, and what happens? What are his people doing? Aaron threw in gold into a fire, and out popped a golden calf, right? That was the excuse anyways, and his people committed idolatry. God almost destroyed them at the outset. That was a type of foreshadowing, literary foreshadowing. God's people would do this over and over and over throughout their history. And so God exiled them, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They were, his people were exiled from his presence, from the temple, through Assyrian captivity, through Babylonian captivity. There would be a return, true, and they would rebuild the temple again, the second temple, because the first was absolutely decimated. Just think. Uh, we have, you know, what are some historical icons in our country? The White House, Statue of Liberty. We don't really have a parallel for this because we are not a theocracy. But this was the center of life and worship and vitality for a nation, and it was obliterated. You know what they were asking? Did God forsake us? Is he done with us? finally. That's what they were thinking. Even the second temple that was rebuilt was a, was a hollow shell. There was no Ark of the Covenant that was lost. There was no Ten Commandments inside. There was no uh, Aaron's staff that had budded. All of that had been gone, taken, stripped. They don't even know where it is today. The second temple, it says the elders that saw the first temple, the ones who actually physically saw the first temple and the second one, it says they wept 
as it was dedicated because it just didn't even compare. Theirs were not tears of joy. Theirs were tears of sorrow. So the second one was almost like a hollow shell of the first. But as God often does in moments of calamity and destruction, God had something better in mind, didn't he? God had something more in store for God's people. And so the New Testament opens up in this darkness. They're under Roman captivity. No word from God. And John 1.1, or John, the book of John, his famous opening chapter in John 1.14, he makes this amazing assertion about Jesus. Listen to this, John 1.14. It's famous. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And we have seen his glory. You remember John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says this Word in verse 14 became flesh. Flesh. I'm so happy to see you in the flesh because you're here in the flesh. And he says, and this word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And that's a very interesting word for dwelt. That could also be translated tabernacled among us. John says that this word tabernacled and we have seen his Glory. Glory. Just like Israel saw the cloud of glory descend on the first tabernacle, just like they saw the presence of God in cloud descend on the temple, John now says we have seen the glory of the Father in the face of the Son, Jesus. That's an incredible assertion. God would come down again in glory in the midst of his people, but not in a building, not in a building, but in a person, in a person, in a body of flesh, in the person of Jesus. John then goes on to make some incredible additional statements recording what Jesus said. In John 2, 19, Jesus said things like, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they tell us he was talking about the temple of his body. His body. Nobody in that day understood what he meant. But Jesus was upending their entire understanding of God's work and God's temple. Jesus was asserting himself as the place where people go to meet God. That's astounding. Now, that's your very quick overview of the temple and its development from Genesis, Exodus to New Testament time of Jesus. Now, the rest of the New Testament, we see an additional development, don't we? where Jesus asserts himself as the temple, but not just himself. His people are also identified as this temple work. Let's check this out. So now we come to Corinthians, the book of Corinthians. And we all know that the church in Corinth was a, was a, a dysfunctional church, we could say. They, this was not a healthy church. This was a church that you may like if you entered into it because they just allowed all kinds of things to go on. But they were not a holy church. They were not a godly church. Corinthians was characterized by factions, divisions, disunity. They were ruled by worldly wisdom. Amazingly, Paul still referred to them as saints in his introduction. It's amazing. Given all that he knew about Corinth, he still called them saints. It's amazing. Now, how many of you like those shows where they renovate houses? 
I mean, like those shows, you guys watch those, anything? Anybody watch those shows where they renovate houses? They take the old, kind of busted up house, and then they, they knock everything out. If that's you, you will love the book of Corinthians, because that's essentially what Paul is doing. He is renovating this church with the Word of God. He is transforming it with the truth of God. In verse 9, he refers to the Corinthians as God's field. He says, you are God's field, God's building. Wow! Think about that. That alone. If I were to take you up country, I could take you all up country. We could go up a certain road. I could take you to a certain driveway with a certain gate. You could peer through that gate and you would see landscaping and, and a beautiful property. You might be able to get a little glimpse of some structures on that property. Maybe if I gave you an aerial overview, we would see a house. If I gave you a drone overview and you'd see a beautiful house, a few houses actually, you'd say, wow, that's beautiful. And, I, and then I would say, that's Oprah's house. you say, oh, Oprah's house. I didn't know Oprah. That was, that's where Oprah's house was. And knowing who owns the house gives you a little bit interest in the house, doesn't it? You might pay a little bit more attention to the landscaping, to the decor, to the color, to the structure. You might, you might want to be a little bit more in tune with the particularities of the property, knowing it belongs to Oprah. And now here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at the people of God and says, you are God's building. He says, you know who owns this house? God owns this house. That's incredible. Beloved, you should pause for a moment and think about that truth. You are God's building. You are where God lives. Now, you might think, nah, I know it's says that, Pastor Randy, but, but that can't be. I, I am a sinful person. I have sinful thoughts. My thoughts are often not about God. It's just, I, it's just too, it's almost too good to be true. But it's true. You are God's building. You might think, I don't feel like a building for God, but it's true. Just because you don't feel like it, doesn't mean it's not true. You are God's building, both singularly in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is going to be his motivation to flee sexual immorality, to flee passions of the flesh, because you are the temple of the living God. Singularly, you are pieces of that temple, a place where God lives, and corporately, you are also together the temple of the living God. His Spirit dwells within you. So singularly and collectively, you belong to God. So like those, that couple, Erica, what's that couple's name that you like? The fixer-upper? Chip and Joanna Gaines. Thank you. I knew you would know them. The, the fixer-upper couple, just like them. This is the story of Corinth. This is the story of all of us. God takes us made in his image, ensnared in sin through the fall, and through the gospel of Christ, changes us, remakes us completely, starts knocking out walls, erecting new closets, fixing and patching up what was broken and mangled in sin, and he turns it into a dwelling place suitable for him. So we could say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We all know the most important part of a house isn't how it looks, is it? It's not the paint color or the furnishings or the walls, the carpet. The most important part of the house is what? The foundation. The foundation. Whatever's built on top of it, that's important. It's not to say the framework's not important. It's important, but it can be changed if the foundation 
salvation is secure. You can fix and alter the rest. But if the foundation is broken, cracked, or otherwise corrupted, there's no hope. Start over. And so Paul, in the midst of of correcting, and and in many ways he's chastising this church for their jealousy, for their factions, for their disunity and their immaturity. He's chastising them. We couldn't, he says, we couldn't address you as spiritual. We had to address you as infants. Second Corinthians, Paul ends his letter with saying, do I need to come with the rod and be severe again? Basically, listen. I was like, you just read the end of Second Corinthians. It's, it's mind-blowing. He's chastising this church, and in the middle of of really rebuking them for their disunity, he asserts their common unity, their common foundation, which is Jesus Christ. They all share this foundation. And so while the framework and the house might be in disorder, their foundation, Paul says, is solid. He says, I laid a foundation, and that foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. It's none other, he says, than Christ Jesus in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is massively important. It's something that seems like it's so obvious that's what makes it dangerous. It seems like it's so obvious, and that is what also makes it so dangerous, because you and I assume that everybody who steps foot in these doors, that everybody who tunes in online, we assume dangerously that all of them have the foundation of the gospel just because they're in a church. And that is a deadly assumption. a church to make. It's a deadly assumption. It's also dangerous because many try to build other foundations or make other foundations and build on the church on them. Some other foundations, and these are hard because it doesn't start out this way. Social justice can be another foundation that people try to build the church on. So maybe we'll, we'll turn from being a gospel-preaching church to a homeless-helping church. We'll help the homeless. We'll put all of our efforts, all of our funds into helping people have homes and not tell them about the God who gives them an eternal home by repenting from their sins and having faith in Christ. But we'll just give them temporary houses or, or we'll help fight domestic abuse and and drug addiction and all these other good causes. We'll provide water for people in other countries. Bad things? No, not, not at all. Should the church be engaged in these things? Yes, yes, the church should be engaged in these things. But should these things be the foundation? No, far be it from us to ever make anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation upon which we build the church. Far be it from us to ever make people comfortable in their sins on the way to hell, to provide water for them but withhold the water of life. Far be it from us to do such things. We will build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Social programs and ministries people tried to build the church on. All of these things, as I said, are not wrong for the church to do. All of them, in some ways, are necessitated by the gospel for the church to do. Yes and amen. But it must never be that we have any other foundation than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what happens when you start to make something else the foundation? You know how you know you start to do that? Because when you say, how can we help this ministry? Ooh, the government got a lot of money here for this. Okay, let's take that money. Oh, but we also can't preach Christ while we do it. That's okay. Let's do that. That's where you start to make something else the foundation of your ministry, 
or of your church. That's how it starts to happen. In a million other ways. The foundation of the church is and must always remain Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone and that message of Christ that we call the gospel of Christ. And amazingly, through this work of Christ, a way was made for God to not only dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. Now, here's a little theological note, uh, a point of emphasis. So some of you watching this, and maybe some of you here, may not get all that I'm saying here, but it is very important, and it impacts other things you do get. And so uh, I'm going to interact with a point here just, and I'm highlighting it for you so that you know what I'm doing so it doesn't go over your head, and you're like, oh, what is that? So I'm going to make a little theological note here. And so this reality of the presence of the temple of God in the church of God, which makes Christ our high what? Priest. This reality with Christ as our high priest and our king demonstrate that we are not to look for the literal rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. I understand. Some will take issue with that. It's okay. I understand why. But think about the implications of this with Christ being the temple, us as parts of that temple. His priestly role of priest, prophet, king demonstrate we are not to look for a literal of the temple in Jerusalem. Christ is right now reigning in his temple, the church composed of Jews, Gentiles, united by faith in Christ, and he will continue to reign in his church as it is built until the second coming. So as one scholar noted, I quote, hence the argument that there are physical and national aspects of the Davidic kingdom that must be fulfilled in a future millennial age flies against the face of the present reality of the end-time temple in the church. Close quote. I'll let you sink on that for a second while I get some water. You hear what he's saying? If our king and our priests are reigning now in his temple and his kingdom, that means we are not looking for physical and national aspects of the Davidic kingdom to be fulfilled in a future millennial age. It flies in the face and the grain of the New Testament. Christ is reigning now on his throne. He is a king. He's not a prince awaiting a kingdom. He is a king with a kingdom. And it will reign in increasing measure from now until he returns. If you want the fuller explanation of that, you can go back and listen to all my Revelation series for refreshment. And maybe I'll do it again one day for fun. But it is a beautiful study. End of theological aside, resuming. Point number one. Point number one, the foundation, Jesus Christ. Point number two, the framework. The framework, verse 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the framework we see, we want to build with good materials. When you build with materials, you want them to be really, really good materials. We live in the parsonage of the church. The parsonage was built in the 50s, and the wood they made in the 50s is just like solid, hard wood. It is very dense, very difficult to nail through, uh, as maybe some of you will laugh as I've been nails trying to nail stuff into them because it's just so hard. But if I go to Lowe's right now or Home Depot and I get wood from there, it just goes in just very easily. It's a very different wood. We want to build with the best materials. These pews you're sitting on, these things are 70 plus years old. Incredible. 
Incredible. The pews you will sit on, I don't know what you're sitting on online, probably not a pew, but the pews in here, hardwood, good materials. Paul encourages his people to build with gold, metal, precious stones, things that are imperishable, that will make it through the fire. In short, what does this mean? What does it mean to build with, with gold and silver and precious stones? How do we do that? This is a picture. It's an image. In short, I'll spare you the full right now for time's sake. In short, it is faith-driven, faith-driven, spirit-wrought works done in accordance with his word. Faith-driven, spirit-wrought works done in accordance with his word. Works done like that, motivated from faith, in the Spirit, in accordance with the Word of God, when you work like that, that is precious stones. That will withstand fire. So in a sense, all of us are building on the foundation. We're all building. Some are laying, some are doing this. And all of our works, Paul says, are going to be tested, tried, and revealed on the last day when God judges the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of everybody. So a judgment day is coming, we're building, and a day will come when your works will be revealed for what they were, what motive, thought, intention of the heart was. You can have two people do the exact same tasks from very different motives, and that will be revealed at the last day. It is often said that believers... Their judgment, our judgment, is not judicial. It is not judicial on the last day in the final sense. In other words, it's not for condemnation or acquittal. That judgment has already been rendered in Christ. That judgment's already been rendered forgiven. Our judgment is for rewards in heaven, is often said. More like an athlete running a race than a criminal before a court. How did you run? How faithful were you for rewards, not for final judgment? And Paul is encouraging them to build with good materials that will withstand the judgment. And so if that's what gold and precious stones are, what is wood, hay, stubble? What is that? What is those types of building materials? Here's there's a few things, wood, hay, and stubble, obviously, straight from Corinth, factions, divisions, sowing discord. One of the hardest things about sowing discord and factions is divisions. What makes it so dangerous is the people who are doing it often don't know they're doing it. They often don't realize they're actually sowing discord. They just think, I'm fighting for truth. I'm standing for what's right. I'm trying to correct this or that. And they don't even realize sometimes that they're doing it. Rarely have I run across, I have run across, rarely though have I run across somebody who is being divisive, who is intentionally, knowingly doing it. Rarely. Most of the time, it's somebody who is walking in the flesh. What Paul is saying is acting carnal like an infant. Like an infant, infants are only concerned about who? Me, 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 me. Paul says most of the time that's it. Factions, division, sowing discord, Boasting in worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom in the church can sound, when a church or a culture is somewhat saturated by the church or Christian ideals, worldly wisdom can sound very theological. You can quote wonderful theologians and have lots of worldly wisdom attached to it. I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. They're not saying I'm of Aristotle. I'm of Socrates, I'm of Plato. They were identifying with faithful men of God. Worldly wisdom, thinking too highly of yourself, only considering your perspective instead of considering how others, there may be 
differences in the body of Christ or different understandings of the same reality. It's really important as we approach our reunion as the body of Christ. It's really important that we consider not just my perspective, not just what I'm comfortable with, not just what I think is happening in our community, nation, world, but others, other motives, other thoughts. And let let my judgment, let our judgments of others' thoughts and intentions be benevolent, loving renderings. Here's a test. Here's a test. If you know you've stumbled into this trap. How often do you ask for others' opinions? Not to listen, or others' perspectives. Not to listen, sorry, not to argue, but to listen and understand. How often do you ask for others' perspectives and opinions? Not for the sake of arguing your own, but for the sake of understanding theirs. You see? That's how we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom in all wisdom. Sadly, our culture is one where listening is not highly valued, but Proverbs 18.2 seems to ring true in social media. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Ouch. Other ways of wood, hay, and stubble would include, obviously, direct contradictions to God's word, works done outside of reliance on God. All of these things would be categorized as wood, hay, and stubble, and they will be burnt up at the end, revealed for what they are, worthless. Let's flesh out a little bit more application, and then we'll wrap it up. What are some other implications of this truth? If you are God's temple, you are God's building, corporately and collectively, What ought you to do then? If you are the temple of God, you are to be holy. You are to be holy. That means you give your hands, you give your eyes, you give your ears, you give your tongue, you give your whole being to holy endeavors. Because without holiness, the scriptures say nobody will see the Lord. We all have to contend with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How's that work together? I hope it brings all, but I thought we're saved by grace through faith. And uh, Good, those are good. You should feel that rub. You should feel it. If you are the temple, you are to be holiness. Class of 2020, I'm going to pick on you not pick on you, lift you up, guide you in the way that you are to go. Jesse, congratulations. Victoria, congratulations. Give yourselves to holiness this year. Whatever you learn in school, in the university, or whatever your plans are, give yourself to holiness. Follow that way, and you will have a sound foundation as you build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, Use your hands, what you do. Use your eyes, what you see on a screen. They often say the eyes are the window to the heart. Guard your eyes. Use your ears, what you hear. When I was in high school, it was often just our, our youth pastors or youth ministers saying, you know, don't listen to bad music, garbage in, garbage out. Don't, don't listen to bad music, explicit music, burn your tapes. That's really, although that is good counsel and good advice, that's really not the direct application of this passage in Corinth. He wasn't concerned that they would listen to primarily explicit music, although you should listen to godly music. His main concern is that you not give yourself to false teaching, to false teachers, to the ways of the world. And yes, explicit music can be psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The opposite of that would be other forms of teaching, right? So it's not an incorrect application. It's just not enough for us. It's just not enough. We need to be careful with the books we read, the teaching we entertain, that it is also built on Christ. I'm so thankful I have some members here who sometimes they'll, they'll shoot me a book. Hey, I'm reading this. Is this good? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's good. Or sometimes I'm like, eh. 
it's, it could have some good insights, and other times, like, just don't read that. That's just, here, read this instead. That's rubbish. This is better. Praise God, and we're here to do that for you. We're here to help you because what you give your mind to will shape more than you can say or understand. Tongue, not just what your ears hear, but what your tongue says when you speak. May it be holy speech befitting our high priest and your entire body to be put to holy tasks. I'll let the Lord continue to apply this to you in your own particular settings at home, here. Suffice it to say, anything unholy, as you think through this, anything unholy in my life, I should take absolute amputation against. Just cut it out, remove it entirely, don't look back. Cast aside every weight and sin that hinders your running and the race. Give yourself to holiness. That's the first implication. If you are the temple, here's the second one, and God lives in you, what does that make your role to be? Who works in temples? Starts with a P. Priests. If you are a temple built together collectively, that means believer, you are a priest. You minister in the temple. Now, this is a very important doctrine. It's actually a Baptist distinctive. If you wonder, uh, what, what is it about Kahului Baptist Church that makes us different from, say, uh, a Lutheran or uh, maybe makes us different from Presbyterian or, or something like that, which I love our Lutheran and Presbyterian brothers and others, but this is actually a Baptist distinctive, and I'll preach a sermon on this later, but the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, uh, Baptists, we could contend, are really the only ones who take that seriously. Ooh, sorry, Presbyterian Lutheran friends. I love you guys to death if you're watching online. But really, uh, Baptists do take the implications and the application from Scripture seriously in the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. And I'll preach a sermon on that later, and we'll see how things play out if we get into the summer. That's one of the first things on the agenda. But for now, one of the tasks we have as priests, that means, yes, you are a priest if you work in a temple, you are here if you are in Christ, you are priests. One of the tasks we have is to intercede with God for the sake of others. We intercede with God for the sake of others. Beloved, this is the collective ministry of prayer in our church. The collective ministry of prayer in our church. Oh, how critical it is, KBC, for you to pray. And when you are praying, you are fulfilling your priestly function in this world as we intercede for others with God. When you pray for your family at home, you are lifting them up like a priest lifts up those he represents. I have little doubt that President Trump's announcement deeming churches as essential organizations is a direct answer to prayer, to the prayer of God's people. As the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. It is an answer to prayer. That means you are a priest. For, uh, third one, third implication, there are communal implications. There are communal implications. If we are a temple, like a wall, collectively there are different types of stones, aren't there? There's the cornerstone. Who's that? Jesus. There's foundation stones in the ancient world. There were stones that would be built on top for the walls. There are capstones. There's all kinds of different stones. As I said earlier, when Paul says you are a temple in this, it's in the plural, second person plural, almost all of them. It's not just you singular, it's you plural, as in you all are the temple of God. And so that means there are communal implications. 
all of you. You are to recognize other people in Christ as fellow building stones with all their differences and peculiarities. You are not a temple alone. And if you're watching this at home, if you're a KBC Ohana because, and you're separated because you're trying to abide by the laws, love your neighbor, care for your family, those types of things, if you're separated from that, I'm not talking necessarily to you, but I, I just want to address the person who says, I can be a Christian and not need to go to church. I can follow Jesus at home. My, my church is on the golf course or at the beach. That's rubbish. Rubbish. You are a fool. You're a fool. And I say that in love and hoping you will think, why is this man calling me a fool? Why haven't I turned off the stream yet? Because I am pleading for your soul because you have bought into a lie that says you can follow Jesus alone and you are going to get picked off if you aren't already or you are going to settle for less than what God has for you. You are not following all of the Lord's commands. You are being disobedient. So now you know the collective implications of 1 Corinthians 3. Wrestle with Paul. Uh, I think my tone was in line with what his tone would have been. Wrestle with him, wrestle with the Lord, but collectively, plural, we. We follow Jesus together. The flock of God, the bride of Christ, his temple. Learn to value others for their differences, not to despise them. Because together we will be a place where the nations, the nations can meet with God as ambassadors of Christ as we bear the beautiful gospel diamond. In closing, at the very end of all things, in Revelation 21, John sees a new city descending Onto the new heavens and new earth, doesn't he? In the book of Revelation 21, amazingly, we have this dazzling description. It's beautiful. It's striking visually. But what's even more, dis- what's even more striking than what's described is what's not described. We get a vision of a city. What we don't have is a description of of a temple. And here, verse 22, Revelation 21. Here's what he says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no temple. Why? Because God, at the end, is in the midst of his people again, and they are all perfectly holy. You are the temple of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would lead us in such a way that we increase in holiness, that we increase in togetherness as a temple, that we would increase in prayer as priests, and Father, that we would be built up in the Lord. And may you draw many, 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 